to action's antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. For the vast majority of people, work is a major part of our lives. And one key aspect that really impacts our experience of work is the culture of the organization that we work for. Work culture is one area where I personally believe that we're in serious need of making work work better for more people. With that being said, I want to bring up my guest today, Uma Gopaldis, who started her own business called Leading Lotus, that is leading the charge in bringing us a better, more useful work culture. Thank you for joining us, Uma. Hi, Stephen. Thank you for having me. This is my pleasure. Tell me a little bit about Leading Lotus and what your goal is for our work culture. Yeah, so I started Leading Lotus four years ago. I incorporated on Feb 14th on Valentine's Day. Um, Oh, nice. I had nothing else to do that day. (laughs) 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 I was kind of a rebel. I had just quit um, the corporate world. I had 26 years of working and living all over the world. I was in oil and gas, you know, that I was working offshore on oil rigs and platforms Mm -hmm. and remote towns. And then I was with Accenture Management Consulting several years and then had high-powered jobs and careers and uh, followed by the gold mine industry. Part of it was I was struggling to find a purpose for my own life, which was kind of pulling at me. And even though I had great careers, the remuneration was great. Work-life balance was an issue, but then Mm -hmm. financial stability was not an issue. Mm -hmm. And that was the struggle was didn't have to change anything except I had to. It was kind of like a conundrum, you know, and it wasn't like just yesterday I woke up and decided, oh, I want to do this. It was starting to happen six years before I even quit my last high flying job. And when it was time to let go of paid job, the decision was very natural. And so I at end of 2016, after finishing all my projects, right? I just didn't leave. I had a three-year project that I completed and I left. And I disengaged from everything for three months and founded Leading Lotus. The company had an underlying theory that we all need to come out of the bog, the muddy, murky consciousness of mess that we go through every day in our minds. Mm-hmm. which is where a lotus grows. Lotus is actually like a weed. It only grows in muddy, murky, unclear waters. Not many oh, people wow. Know. Yeah, and it always comes out of the water pristine because it's got a self-cleaning technology built into it. So we call it the lotus effect. It's actually scientifically proven design that's used in control towers. Not many people know the biology of lotus. It's a revered plant. Been around 450 million years. Oh, I certainly didn't. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so I said, well, every day we do need to come out of that muddy, murky messiness. And we need to think clearly, see the light and make the right decisions. Right. And that's a mm-hmm. tough choice every day, day in and day out. I designed my company based on that. And the, the tagline was decide with clarity. So it's supposed to help people, individuals, professionals, businesses, corporations, nonprofits get out of the struggling mode and get into the striving mode and then end up in the thriving mode. Because if you really look at the lotus, they thrive. They thrive in a murky environment, but it's an ecosystem where it's always going to shine bright when the sun lights out. So that was Mm -hmm. the premise of leading lotus. So 
What is this, this muddy, murky place? Can you describe what does it feel like? What does it look like? What does it sound like? In the worst situation, it feels like you're drowning for an individual. Mm. Your lungs and your stress levels, the hormones, your brains, your vein, everything is like a ticking bomb. That's called the burnout stage. You can't think clearly anymore because you're overworked. Your company or your work is compromised and you don't have security, stability. That darkness actually for an individual is almost like a panic state, Mm. but a constant panic state where you're short with people, you're angry with people easily, you're with your kids, your wives, your spouses, your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your parents, and you always don't have enough time. Mm. Time is a very elusive concept. So if you're not having enough time, (laughs) what is that? You know, that's so... There's not even enough time to think about why you don't have enough time. Hmm, Interesting. Yeah, that's how I would characterize it. For a business, it's the trajectory that is going downhill and you do not know how to pull it up. Where graphs showing your growth rate going up and suddenly flipping and falling down. There's no no amount of work (laughs) that you can do to try and pull it up. The startups are like Uber and Lyft and WeWork. They all have gone through that, right? Mm -hmm. They've enjoyed a huge period of growth. And then suddenly it's like, whoops, what did we do now? (laughs) Uh, So no one is immune to that. It's just Mm -hmm. businesses and organizations themselves have a very different way to operate these days, which is a lot more larger, uh, deeper, the breadth of scope and the ability to influence society is a lot deeper. So... That's where the problem lies, making the right decisions. Mm. So what typically gets people into this murky, muddy place? Is it mostly overwork? Is it insecurity? Is it a combination of a lot of things? That's a great question. If you're talking about individuals, it's very personal to them. But in a broad aspect, people are not thinking long-term enough. Mm. Coming from Asia, I'm from Singapore, right? And Singapore is always about the 1500 year vision because it's a tiny island. So we cannot afford to think about tomorrow, mm. next day. We have to think about our population in 100 years. We have to think about this island is sinking. How else can we reclaim, <laughs> <laughs> reclaim land from the ocean? Let's quickly dredge more sea, you know, kind of stuff. So that society has built me up for a long-term, larger vision to have in life and in businesses, right? So I have never actually went after the short-term remuneration or pays or the payback is tough position to be in when you are not looking for short-term gains in the hope that long-term will pay off. I think would be the key problem is for individuals will be like, for example, today I have a job. I'm doing great. I just got a great job. And then you chugging along three months, six months, you're starting to get disillusioned. And then Mm -hmm. you hit the one year and you're like, I need to find a different job. Mm -hmm. Right. So instead of doing that, what someone needs to do is really look into themselves and say, where do I want to be in five years? Now, for me, 10 years ago, I decided I need to be in a boardroom to be a board of director. Hmm. And 10 years ago, I knew I wasn't ready, but that was where I aimed to go. So everything I did between then, it was to strategize towards that avenue because I need to get educated. I need to build my career path that way. I need to get more experience in the governance and sustainability portion the fiduciary roles and stuff like that. So you really need to design your life in how you see yourself in the future. I didn't used to live like that. I was in my teens and my 20s. 
I was more destructive with my life. Mm. I could have been a multimillionaire today, but no, I just threw money away and didn't believe in money. <laughs> like, oh, I'll be dead tomorrow. Let's just party. <laughs> I was getting paid a lot too. I was working offshore on oil rigs and I was working for a very big oil and gas company, Schlumberger, and it was paying me a lot. And I was also living in remote towns earning the hardship allowances. Yet I came back home with $15,000 debt, even though oh, wow. I was paid more than that a month. Wow, that <laughs> so, sounds like rapper stuff right there. <laughs> that was. I was just disillusioned. I was like, uh, life sucks, everything sucks. Da, 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 da. Let's just throw money at everything and give money away to people. And, you know, it was philanthropic, philanthropic as well. I saw too much poverty and destruction, and I just, at a young age, you just can't manage that when you see too much bad stuff happening. So I would say that today I am, first of all, regret what I did when I was 20s. <laughs> you know, <laughs> myself in the head, but I could have been a millionaire. Jesus, if I had saved everything up, bought three properties, I could have just retired, right? But no. Mm-hmm. Learning that lesson has, in my 30s, set me up for success. So I had to learn that in my 20s. And then in my 30s, I started getting serious about investing and investing in really good insurances, endowments, uh, stock market, and so real estate and stuff like that. In my 40s, I went into real estate. You got to really think, you know, especially for women, because as an Asian girl, when I was young, we were not taught about the financial aspect of growing money. Mm -hmm. But being Asian, we had thought about saving money. So that was the saving grace from my family. But- (laughs) They would never say, oh, you're going to be a rich girl. You're just going to be married off. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> I broke that mold too. And so I had a very keen sense of understanding that as an individual, regardless of your background, your race, your gender, you have to be self-sufficient and be able to project that for a long term. To really succeed, you really need to think long-term vision. So it feels to me, and you would know this better than I would, having lived in many different places, it seems to me like American culture is notoriously short-term in its thinking. What do we need to do to reorient ourselves to more long-term visions? Absolutely. I've done a couple of goal settings for millennials and zillennials. It's not a matter of not wanting to think long-term. It's not having grown up that way. When you go to school, it's like, okay, you got to pass this test and you got to go to this and go to that. And you got to score so much for this sports and that sports. And it's a very busy life. The hard questions you don't ask quickly or at a very young age. Now, there's also a generational difference too. And you would have had that from Barbara Randall in your last episode. Yeah. The future episodes to come. The culture for the recent times is being able to show your worth through your achievements now. Oh, Instagram culture. Instagram, <laughs> <And> <laughs> gratification, Instagram, Instagram, yeah. and all of that. So it's a like culture, right? It's a thumbs up culture. Yeah, exactly. And like, I'm guilty of it too. I'm not here just pointing the blame, but yeah. I do understand that the culture of like, you get the reward right now, as opposed to the culture of I'm setting myself up for something in the future and I'm doing this work right now, but I might not see any real benefit to myself for six months, a year three years is a completely different way of thinking about it. Absolutely. And for me, when I first moved to US 
And I've lived in Africa, Middle East. I've worked a lot in Middle East for oil and gas, Europe, and obviously U.S. for a long time. Moving around, the culture is very different because the problems are very different. Mm -hmm. The nature of the problems are very different. If you're looking at a developing nation, conflict-free zones are a luxury in certain places. So if I'm in that situation, do I want thumbs up or do I want someone not to shoot me in the head accidentally? (laughs) Right. No, sorry, so, I shouldn't be laughing at that. Yeah, I know. No, I mean, but uh, so that's the analogy I use, right? It's like, okay, so I get a thumbs up, but I accidentally get killed. Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> fail, right? <laughs> so that's the difference is the cultures are different because of the underlying aspects of the need. So when I move to U.S. completely, I used to come in and out, right? I was in Texas before Chicago, but. 10 years ago, I moved completely to US for the job I was doing prior to setting up my company. I only had 60 people in my Facebook and I was very proud of it. And the 60 people, and I was (laughs) trying desperately to cut down more. (laughs) Yeah. And telling people, no, I do not want to add you and you and you. It's only for my family who live on the other side of the world. Singapore is like literally on the other side of the world. How can I explain to you that for me, Facebook is nothing more than something to keep in touch for my family so they can see photos. For me, I used it as an app where I can post pictures so my mom and my cousins and everybody can see that I'm alive in a foreign country. And (laughs) I can't pick up the phone 14 14 hours later and say, I'm alive. You know, it's just uh, difficult. So that was what I was using it. But it started to grow and it started to annoy me that I wasn't able to shut people off, people that Mm -hmm. didn't matter to me. And then they would get upset that I wouldn't engage in communication on Facebook. So it's like, okay, let's make this easy. I got rid of Facebook. Now I do have Instagram. Again, I keep it very simple. Again, the 60, 70, 80 people that I need to keep them. And I try not to put too much people from work or anything. It's never work-related. And so for me, again, I'm in an age group that's Generation X too. I mean, 1974, we were used to picking up phone. We were used to the pager culture. That instant gratification, it wasn't something I needed to pursue at all. But I do have to say that that sometimes backfires in my career because I'm not putting myself out there enough for people to know who I am. That includes clients. And so it does backfire, right? It's not good not to be out there. Yeah. That's a paradigm shift. It's a choice that you make and you got to live with it. So I have recently struck a balance with it, right? So I do a lot on LinkedIn and I save social media for family. I think one of the things a lot of people struggle with is having some kind of a separation between their work life and their personal life, especially Twitter, but even with Facebook and Instagram, a post you make on those things can affect your work because they're looking at it. I remember when recruiters first started looking at people's social media presence and beyond just LinkedIn, where you're supposed to look at or GitHub, if you're in the tech world, looking at everything. And suddenly it's like, if you're that 20 something where most of your pictures on Facebook or Instagram, are you falling down drunk at a bar? (laughs) Suddenly I remember when people would say, Oh, I need to deactivate my account while I do a job search and then put it back on later. Yeah, no, it's crazy. One thing I'm wondering is that you talked about the six-year period between when you realized what you wanted to do and when you actually started leading Lotus. Six years before that, at the very beginning, was it the same vision of having leading Lotus or was the vision something different? Did it take on many iterations 
I always say that my career, it's driven by an outside source, but activated by me, mm. which means I started on a journey on a path in my career and I decided, oh, I need to do this. I need to do that. And then it's brought me into places to enable that with me kicking and crying, right? Because <laughs> like the genie in the bottle, yeah. you didn't ask it in the right way. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm both blessed and absolutely shocked where I am today. So when I was in Slumberjee, so I started my career when I was 16 years old. In Singapore, you start pretty early doing internship. I was the richest kid in school, despite coming from a poor community, because oil and gas pays a lot for a part-time job while you're studying full-time. Hmm. And then I rolled into university and they paid me for part of the degree and said, you're going to major in operations management with secondary for supply management and a bit of finance. I said, sure, well not, I'll do it. <laughs> you know, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't say, no, I want to do archaeology or whatever. I just said, yeah. okay, fine. That's, you know, uh, that's what you're doing, I guess. Yeah. That's what I meant. I had all this outside influence, but I knew when I was that young that I was going to be a business person. In fact, oh. I knew I was going to be a businesswoman in well, it's elementary for you guys. We call it primary school at a yeah. very young age. And my best friend was asking me, what do you think you're going to be when you grow up? I said, a businesswoman. And she was mm -hmm. like, what? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Someone who has a business? <laughs> if you knew from primary school, from age seven, eight, whatever that is, that you want to be a businesswoman, how were you able to, because I think a lot of Americans might struggle with this idea, still go to college and pursue a degree in something completely different, operations management? <laughs> Exactly. So how do you pursue your dream? I mean, I think for me, the education was an education, right? It was just Singapore's system was step A, B, C, D, E, F, and then off you go. You had to study, you had to go through university. They knocked you out of the park in the education thing. It's hmm. a nation stuff. You have to go through all the way. Otherwise, you're a failure in society. <laughs> <laughs> So, and they give all the grants and stuff. So there's no excuse for you saying, I'm too poor. I can't afford that. No way, Jose. Everyone needs to go and study. Get to college. We will provide for you. So I studied because, not because, I hated studying. I hated school. So I went through it because it was expected of me. The beauty of it was I was interning for a very big and popular company that I didn't know I was interning for. One of my best friend's auntie was working for Slumberjay in mm -hmm. Singapore. So Singapore is a huge oil and gas refinery island, right? Mm -hmm. It's a great oil. It's a, the greatest exporter of Asia Pacific. So the aunt was looking for some kid to come in and file on the weekends. You know, I was only 15 turning 16 and it was holidays for us back then. It was like a school holiday. And I said, okay, fine, $50 an hour. Why not? That's a huge amount of money, right? Back yeah. then. And so I volunteered and then I got stuck. So they kept calling me and calling me and calling me. And so that's how I ended up interning from 16 years old all the way till I graduated university, 20 years old. And they already offered me a job while I was there. My first stint was operations manager in Indonesia. So managing a $500 million profit and loss port operations in offshore Indonesia. So they shipped me off. As soon as I graduated, I was shipped off to Indonesia. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. So like I said, it was a lot of external influences where I did not say no. I just never said no. I just said, well, let's see where this is heading. My instincts of going with the flow has been spot on. So, so you went with the flow for a while. 
And then at some point you decided I need to go out of the flow and actually start this business. What inspired the business? Like, was the concept behind Leading Lotus inspired by the work experience that you had over these years? Or was it something you had in your mind all along? It was kind of like a combination, right? So when did it start? I was about 29. I was thinking, huh, I would like to try this consulting thing. Because Slumberjee had a huge consulting arm too but I wasn't in the consulting. They just looked fancy and they didn't look like the oil riggers. Like we all wore overalls and hard hats and they all looked fancy in shoes. And I was like, oh, that looks like a great job. (laughs) They don't have to go to the break. (laughs) And so I just said to myself, that might be a fun place to work. And then I left Slumberjay just resting because I finished a big project, seven-year project for their global transformation. I wasn't burnt out. I was just needing a place to rest. When I was just resting, it was in Bali. I was just surfing and drinking beer and stuff like that for three months. And one of my co-worker who was in Slumberjay had left Slumberjay and gone into Accenture Management Consulting, which was a big name consulting company in Asia Pacific, in Malaysia. And for some odd reason, I don't know what possessed him. He took my CV, my resume, spruced it up, and sent it to the Singapore Accenture office and told that they need to hire me in order to set up the supply chain consulting vision. Hmm. So here I am having great fun in Bali thinking, you know, I should find another job at one point. Get a call from Accenture and they go, hey, we got your name and got referred to by CKTO Mm -hmm. and they want to interview you for a position. Six months later, I'm joining management consulting, one of the big fours, right? Big four mm-hmm. Yeah. Next to McKinsey's and Bain's and all of that. I'm joining them in a senior position. And I'm just thinking I should be a consultant. Now, remember the first thought was, I want to be a business owner for seven, eight years old. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then I'm thinking, well, I want to be in consulting. That was 25 plus. And three years in consulting. So I was having a fantastic time but something was off in the consulting world, right? So for me, coming from the industry, I wasn't getting my hands dirty enough. I was just consulting and leaving and saying goodbye. Mm-hmm. I'm not used to that environment. So I felt like I wasn't really producing enough value with the way I'm working. Not in terms of the projects I was doing, those huge amounts of value we were giving, but we don't get to see the fruition of it, right? Because we mm-hmm. leave as consultants. So I didn't even give myself some time or anything. I just said, you know, at some point I need to leave this and go work for a company. And then I was thinking, you know what? I need to set up my own consulting company. While I was saying that, there was a project in Elko, Nevada, and they shipped me off to Elko, Nevada for Newmont Mining, which was a gold mining company, to do a three-month cost-efficiency project. And I landed in Elko, Nevada, kicking and crying. I was like, what the heck? I'm in Singapore and you flew me all the way to a small town. I mean, yeah, that's really like, that's like there's <laughs> nothing around you. There's just desert everywhere, right? Sagebrush. It's a rugged beauty, right? The yeah. canyons. But when you're landing, you don't see it. But once I landed, the first time I landed, I looked around and I said, oh, I found home. Oh, wow. I, I really liked living in remote places and small towns because I'm used to oil and gas, right? And going back home to Singapore was like really tough for me because it was a beautiful, big, glitzy city and I didn't feel comfortable there. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm odd. After doing the three months project, all I said to myself was, huh, it won't be bad if I ended up working here. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe of some sort of a senior role. And I finished that project. I went back home. The managing partner for that project in Accenture leaves Accenture and joins Newmont Mining a year later as the VP of supply chain, calls me up and she says, you know how you really loved Elko, <laughs> Nevada? And I don't yeah. understand why. We have a job for you, a senior role as North American regional you know, supply chain director. Would you want to go? And I'm like, oh, yeah. This was one year later. Right? Like, sure. Yeah. So they're processing my visa and I just leave Singapore, right? In a half and a puff and within one month, I leave and I move to US, to Elko, Nevada for the first time. And I live there in the year 2010, September is when I first moved there. And I said, oh, this is going to be a fun ride. Who knows? I might end up in Colorado is what I said when I landed. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. So all I do is just put out stuff out there and things happen. So I do that role. Within two years, Newman is saying, well, we need you in a global position because we need you to take care of Ghana, Peru, Australia, and not only focus on the Nevada region for the gold mines. So mm-hmm. we're moving you to Greenwood Village, Colorado. Oh, wow. So for a global role, are you going to take it? And I said, no, I was kicking and crying because I loved Elko. I didn't want to move. So I made a deal with them. And I again knew that when I kick and cry, it means that is the right place I'm going towards. It's just not going to be pleasant for me because it's not what my brain is used to, right? My brain Mm -hmm. can't see the full potential of an opportunity So the first instinct is fear. So I agreed and I flew back and forth living in two places, Elko and DTC, Denver Tech Center for two years. And then finally made the commitment to move to Colorado 2013 and worked for Newman. And then I was like, you know, that business thing about consulting thing that I was thinking about, I think it's time. And that's when I started leading all this. What's interesting is that Full circle back to the beginning of the conversation, you talked about that transition being natural in a way, whereas in these other experiences, you talk a lot about things, well, kicking and screaming has come up quite a bit, right? Yeah. But it seemed like (laughs) when you decided it was time to leave and time to start leading Lotus, it felt natural. It almost felt like you said, okay, this one larger project has just come to completion, multi-year project, and now it's just time to do leading Lotus. And that's the funniest part, right? When I was working for other companies, it was like, when is the right time, right? When is the right time? Mm-hmm. When I completed the project and uh, in fact, I think I gave my notice six months early. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So not two weeks notice, six months notice? I didn't have to, but I knew I had to train up someone else to take over what was already built. So I brought in a colleague from Ghana, trained him on this global role so that he could take it wherever he needs to take it. So I positioned it that way and it worked out really well. My bosses were really in sync with what I was thinking in my career. And they kind of knew too. They kind of knew that I outgrew quite a lot of stuff. And I think that was the problem. At every Mm -hmm. end of every program and project, I outgrew the role. I outgrew myself and I needed a bit more of the risky stuff. Here's an interesting question. There is always this balance between, say, stagnation and outgrowing things. If you're running an organization... Were you more concerned about someone that's going to outgrow the role you hire them for or more concerned about someone that's going to 
stagnate and just kind of not be very effective? Like which end of the spectrum is a bigger worry from a management standpoint? For me, particularly from a management point of view, I hire people telling them that they can only work for me or in this role for two years. I need to see them progress two to three years, right? And oil and gas was like that. They would never let you get too cushy and comfortable in a role because that means you're stagnating. And in worse circumstances, if you become complacent, bad things can happen offshore on an oil rig or whatever, right? So we were always moving around like crazy because of that. And I took that personally to how I nurtured people who worked for me as well as hiring, where I liked people who get literally bored of their role very quickly but you don't need that sort of hire for all of the roles. I only take those people for the roles that are more strategic and there's no real hardcore outcome, hmm. right? You need to be very yeah. creative all of the time. Now, if it's something of an administrative sort of tasks kind of stuff, you can't have someone who loves risky businesses, right? Because then they'd get bored of their mind. If you put someone who really likes structure and standards and procedures and policies, you wouldn't put them in a risky sort of position. You would put them in more of an audit kind of like able to analyze and have more surety of what their roles are. I normally look at their characteristics and the personality of the job and then try to find the right fit. That seems like it's a theme, finding the right job for your personality and finding a personality match. Can I ask you, in starting Leading Lotus and bringing these services to organizations and to individuals, what is the overall goal? What is the overall mission that you're looking to advance? Yeah. So when I started Leading Lotus, it was basically a consulting company, human capital excellence, so talent optimization. How do you make sure people don't burn out and run out and your attrition is not awful? How do you keep them engaged and all that? Mm -hmm. Also, it was operational excellence. So, typical consulting company. And it wasn't me. Why am yeah. I starting a new company? I might as well join Accenture again. And so, I morphed it into something. And the word leading Lotus, the Lotus itself is a very pure form of biology. So, my company was more about trying to build a natural ecosystem that's called a culture, a sustainable environment a governance management that helps the organization grow organically without force-fitting and plugging in all sorts of programs. You can see that diversity, equity, inclusion these days are really force-fitted into a company. Like we need more people of color and stuff like that, right? So how do you do that more organically and more naturally and not with a consulting project, for example? Mm -hmm. So today, what Leading Lotus stands for is I integrate social consciousness into organizations. How you operate and how you make these decisions, there needs to be a deep consciousness about who you are affecting outside of your own role, which includes the customers, obviously, the employees, community where you operate, the shareholders and the investors who trust in you. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, society, right? And the planet, yeah. right? So that's how it's rolled into more sustainability, environment, policy building. Right now, I'm more in the boardroom roles, trying to get more governance built in. In the last four years, I would say it's shifted into a more self-conscious awareness for corporations to grow money, but still be very conscious about what you're doing to others. Well, what's really interesting about the story is that it is the mission that you have for yourself from a very young age. I'm going to be a businesswoman. I'm going to be in the boardroom. 
but it also found its way to be flexible and kind of move with like the flows of life, the flows of events. And I feel like a lot of other people can have a story similar to that, whereas you still have an underlying goal, you still have an underlying purpose, but sometimes the details, the specifics, even stuff that's like not as much of a detail, such as what location you're living in can be kind of subject to being altered. What I'm also wondering is when an organization goes through the Leading Lotus program, what does that organization look like? Like, How does that organization look different from, say, your typical American work culture? So when companies come to me, there's a level of disengagement. And sometimes it's more than disengagement. It's a bit of toxicity involved, a bit of hidden agendas or politics that creates more hardship and revenue loss, right? Yeah. You can call it bleeding monies, right? You don't really count it because you're still earning revenue, but you could have earned more revenue. You could have mm-hmm. made your customers more satisfied. Your customers are now worried because they can sense there's some problems within your internal structure. So when I step in, I bring in a journey to them. And it's not change management, it's a transformation. Just like how human beings who are stuck in a rut need to transform their life internally, spiritually, externally, all aspects of their life, health-wise, mind-wise. You take an organization and you build all of those parameters where they need to transform into a healthy manner. And then you build a roadmap out. Some things can be done in a year. Some things can be done in three years, five years. Depends on what else is in the agenda, right? And how much money they have to dedicate to this. Because it does take money to make more money. I mean, that's always Mm -hmm. something I knew very well is you need to spend money to make more money because you need to always make your organization more healthy. And making it healthy in the short run costs money, but in the long run benefits so much more. In fact, there was a research on that, that earnings were at least 5.4 times more than a company that didn't even project to spend money on growth. But here's the problem with that is even though I go in and give this roadmap and say tomorrow you become a more engaged culture and we measure all these aspects, your attrition goes down, your revenue goes up, your cost comes down. Those are the things that are valuable to shareholders, right? What you want to do is, so I still prove the business case, but there's a moral case that is so much more valuable. It transcends the money. So it shows up as a growth, the value of the company growing, you know, I'm done with something like that. Like I said, I've only been operational for years. So many companies just want the roadmap and they try to do it themselves. They've been successful, maybe not in the ways that I want them to do. They mm-hmm. might take piecemeal versions of it. It's not into fruition 100%, but it gets to a point where it's more honesty-based changes. Well, and what I love about this also is that it's not an either-or thing. A lot of people think of a healthy bottom line and satisfying your shareholders and having a strong moral code and having a very good culture that's good for society, good for the environment as mutually exclusive, whereas it actually could easily be both. It is both. Yeah, exactly. It's not one or the other. And that's the problem, right? Even diversity, equity, inclusion, you create a function that's supposed to prove a business case. And the moral case has intrinsic values that delivers so much more to the company. You can't capture it in a dollar sign directly, but you can be creative about it. You can say this year, this was our bottom line and this is how we were operating. 
our salespeople maybe missed so much of sales target. And maybe three years down the road, let's remeasure ourselves. We put in all the strategies to really communicate to people what the true culture and nature of the company is, right? They just want honesty. Mm-hmm. And one thing I do tell company and company leaders is, if you're going to be the screaming toxic culture kind of company, just say you the screaming toxic kind of culture. <laughs> then the people who like that screaming toxic kind of culture will come to you. That's fine. I work for a lot of that kind of company yeah. and enjoyed it when I had the energy to be involved in a high-powered culture where that was necessary or that was built into the culture or whatever. What hurts a company is when they have all these moral codes and conducts and we value people, we value being heard, is this a safe environment? And then there are layers within the hierarchy that does the complete opposite, right? So people go into the interviews all starstruck because of what they see on the websites. And, and then when they start working and after a year or two, they're like, oh, what? something is off and I'm not happy, I'm burning out. And so attrition happens, turnover happens. So what mm-hmm. I tell companies is you either show the right nature of your company, which means if you want to have a strife kind of companies, you're striving for good, striving for value, we may screw things up, but stand by us, we will try and fix it. That's one mm-hmm. culture. The other one is we are very good. We are very powerful. We love everyone. We want to do very good for everybody. But then what actually happens on the ground is completely different. Part of it, I feel like, is about honesty. And part of it's about people knowing what to expect when they get into something. And another interesting part of it is I wonder if this is also part of the whole short-term versus long-term thinking thing. Because I hear a lot and I've read a lot of articles, people talking about how there's a disconnect between what is valuable and what makes money. Whereas maybe the nature of this disconnect is not so much, okay, money never goes after anything good, like people spending money, whatever markets never get the right results. It's just that we're thinking so short term that we're not thinking about how some of these more intrinsic things, they're not going to show up on your quarterly earnings report, but 10 years later, they will because you've created better culture. You've created better society. Yeah. And the world itself is changing. The world of business is changing, right? I mean, we have the seven-year startups that are forever startups. And then we have the story stock companies, which are basically, they look really great on paper because they're trading very well on the stock markets for some odd reason, but they don't have revenue. Yeah. <laughs> that much for the future. So you're like, how is this market capital this big? Yeah. <laughs> Where is it going to come from? Where are the 7 billion people right now going to afford all of these things? You kind of have to understand that the world has changed. The business world is changing, which means people have to become more aware of what it all means. If a company's vision is to start up and then be sold off, then it is by nature a short-term thing. I just need to prove profit now and then sell myself off. If the nature of the business is full of integrity, social responsibility, building sustainable communities where they operate, then that company has a long-term vision. As an investor, for me, my personal values lies in that long-term vision, right? So for me, yeah, sure, I would like to make some quick buck and put it in companies that are flying high in the short run, but I would not feel good with myself. And that's the problem right now. People are chasing the capital and the capital is chasing the market and the market is coming full circle and chasing the people with the capital. And so when capital is being chased and that's chasing the market, it's a destructive force. If we Mm -hmm. can say, stop, I want to put my capital in the things that 
I believe in. But if we keep looking for the next shiny object and unicorn and trying to chase that, then the capital is just going to be kind of destructive in my mind. Well, it's interesting. It seems like a lot of it is about honesty, transparency, understanding our values, and rethinking our priorities. Before we wrap up, I just want to give my audience a chance to get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more about your services. So how would we find you on the internet? And you also, you do offer services both for corporations and for individuals, right? Yes, I do mentoring for individuals. I do mentor through platforms. So yeah, you can reach me at my LinkedIn. You can look me up as Uma Devi Gopaldas, or you can reach me at Uma at leadinglotus.com. Excellent. Well, Uma, thank you very much again for joining me today and sharing your story about experiencing cultures all over the world and hopefully helping all of us get to a better place with some of our workforce transformations. And I would like to thank everyone for listening, for joining us today on Actions Antidotes. And please stay tuned for more episodes about more people who are taking on initiatives that are hopefully bringing us to a better place in the future. 